If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 22. We'll be finishing up Luke chapter 22 this week, starting in verse 63 down through verse 71. But before we read in Luke 22, I actually want to start us out somewhere else, and you're welcome to turn there with me if you would like. But I would really like for us to start this week in Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, just a few chapters earlier. Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 9. This is the parable of the wicked tenants. I know we studied it um, uh, not that long ago when we were in that chapter in Luke. But I want us to read this chapter as we uh, read this parable as we begin our study today. In Luke chapter 20, verse 9 and following, we read this. This is Jesus speaking to the Uh, the Jewish people in the temple. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and, and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And then will the owner of the vineyard, and what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. I want us to start with this parable today as we begin our thinking on the passage of Jesus before the council that we will look at in Luke chapter 22. Because as I was studying this passage, as I was reading it, this parable kept coming to my mind. Thinking about the parable that Jesus had just earlier, just a few days, had told not only the Jewish people, but even these very same men. It's described at the beginning of chapter 20 that he was speaking to the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people. The very individuals who make up the Sanhedrin that Jesus is standing before in our passage today. And I want us to think about what it is that's actually happening in our passage today. Because really the reality is what's taking place in the life of Jesus here in the last days, in the last hours of his life here on earth, before he is ultimately sent to the cross, what's taking place is what Jesus predicted and what he said would happen in this parable. Because the servants that are represented here, this owner of the vineyard who he built this vineyard, raised it up, and then put people in charge of it. He put tenants in charge of this vineyard in the parable. And when it time, came time for the fruit, what did he do? He sent servants to bring back some of the fruit of his vineyard. These servants are represented by the prophets throughout the Old Testament. All of the prophets that the Lord sent to the people of Israel overwhelmingly were mistreated They were abused. They were even killed for being a prophet of the Lord. And over and over again, 
These servants were sent, and time after time they were beaten, they were abused, they were treated shamefully, and ultimately sent back empty-handed. And what the owner of this vineyard ultimately decided was, I shall send my son, for they will surely respect him. But what we see instead is that the very son of the owner of the vineyard, when they saw him coming, they decided, these wicked tenants, decided that they would kill him so that they could keep for themselves what they felt like they had a claim to, so that they could keep the power, so that they could keep the wealth all to themselves. And there's much that we'll see in in the way this parable, I think, really speaks to the situation that Jesus is in here at the end of Luke chapter 22. And as we, so as we look at Luke chapter 22, I want us to keep this text in our mind as we consider this passage, as we see the reality of this parable being acted out, of what Jesus predicted would come to these Jewish leaders. If you remember last week, I noted that Jesus was largely absent from the story. Primarily, the story was focused on, was centered around Luke. But this week, Jesus is standing dead center in the spotlight as his enemies have their moment, as they have their time of power, their perceived triumph here in this trial of Jesus. And I want us to consider how it is that Jesus handles himself in this terrible situation in front of this wicked court. So read with me in Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Let's pray. Lord God, as we study your word today, I pray that your word would be powerful, that it would move in ways that we would never expect. Lord, my words as a man are without power. They are without force. So Lord, I ask that your word today would be the thing that does the work. I pray that your word today would produce results. I pray that your word today would work on our hearts, would cut even to the deepest part of us. And Lord, I pray that my words would simply be a vessel. And where my words fail, I pray that you would uh, remove them out of our minds. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The first thing I want us to see in this passage, which is point number one, is that Jesus stood unflinching in the face of abuse, and so should we. In verses 63 through 65, we see this instance where Jesus is being utterly abused. He's being mocked. He's being beaten. In fact, the beating almost is assumed. It's almost an afterthought where, where the author Luke says, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. 
And they blindfolded him and they kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? Mocking Jesus, making fun of him, ridiculing him, and even, as verse 65 says, blaspheming him. Verse 65 also says that there were many other things that they said against him. The implication, I think, being here that the things that were being said, the things that were being done to Jesus, said of him, said to him, were not even worth writing down in the book of Luke. They were so awful, so nasty, so terrible that Luke wouldn't even write them down. This situation that's taking place, this, these few verses where Jesus is being mocked, beaten, and the other gospels tell us even spat upon, which was the lowest abuse that you could show a person, it was the greatest of insults, was to spit on someone, and they spit on Jesus' face. This is taking place actually before, kind of in between these various councils, these various trials that Jesus went through at the hands of the Jewish leaders. Because actually, as I said last week, there were two trials that took place before this one that we see in our text today. That Jesus, Jesus had already gone before Caiaphas, the high priest, and Annas, his father-in-law. This had been going on all night. And here in this time, Jesus was in between the time of those trials and the trial to come, where uh, Jesus would go before the Sanhedrin in a somewhat more official fashion, he was being held by uh, what were likely the temple authorities, the temple guards were holding him in custody. These were people who claimed to be religious, who were on the side of religion, who claimed to be on the side of God, who were treating Jesus so terribly here. And in this moment, in verses 63 through 65, and really throughout the rest of the story, Jesus was fulfilling what the prophet Isaiah had spoken in Isaiah 53, that famous passage on Jesus, the suffering servant, the Messiah that was to come, predicted in Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, 7, the prophet says this, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Every bit of shame, every bit of abuse, every bit of hatred that these evil men could muster, they poured out on Jesus. They held nothing back. And in the face of all of it, what did Jesus do? Jesus stood there and he took it. He took it without clenching his fist. He took it without raising his hand, without retaliating even the slightest bit. Jesus was silent like a sheep before its shearers is silent. If this doesn't prove Christ's deity, I don't know what does. Because I would, I would offer that not a single one of us could stand before this kind of abuse and do nothing. I don't think any one of us would be able to stand for this without even getting riled up or getting angry. I mean, how quick would we be to send punches back their way, to send insults back their way, to spit right back at these Pretty quick, I think most of us would jump to abusing these abusers back. We would seek to defend ourselves. We would seek to lash out. Understandably so. Yet Jesus took every single bit of it. He never even raised a finger at these wicked and awful and terrible men. And there is a lesson here for us, I think. Not that we should let people beat us up. Not that we should let people abuse us or kick us around or spit on our face or certainly do that to our loved ones. The point here is not a, an argument against self-defense, but rather to say that 
as Christians, we will face abuse. We will be put in situations where people mock us, where people offend us, where people do things to revile us. One example of this is uh, I'm reminded of whenever I was a student at USI, my last year, I took what's called what they call an assessment and an evaluation at USI. And if you went to USI, you'll know what I'm talking about. You have to take it in your first year and you have to take it in your last year. And there's two parts to this assessment and evaluation. There's the assessment, which is basically just geared uh, to try and determine how well you did, how much you uh, learned in college, basically. You would take the assessment at the beginning of your college experience, and then you would take it at the end. And they would ask you the same questions to see how well you learned while you were in college. But then the evaluation, which came after the assessment, was something very different. The evaluation was geared more towards the US, towards USI, towards the university, determining how well they were doing with engaging with their students, how well they were doing um, with pleasing their students. Basically, it was, hey, judge us. How are we doing? Answer these questions so we know what life is like here at USI, where we can improve. And one thing I noticed is that there was about six questions in a row, all of which had the same answers, but the questions were worded just slightly different. Basically, what these quick six questions summed up was, has any faculty member, any staff, any person, any worker at USI, any teacher, professor, whatever, ever offended you on the basis of any of these things? And the list that followed was very similar to what you would expect. Have you ever been offended by any of these people on the basis of your race, of your sexual orientation, of your political views, of your uh, gender? Various things like that. There was about five options, all of which along those same lines. Basically, it was the university asking, were you ever offended on the basis of any of these things? It was their attempt kind of sort of to be politically correct, to make sure things were, were kosher at their university. Because if anyone was feeling abused or offended, they wanted to know about it. But what was fascinating to me was that in the list of these questions, you know what wasn't listed as an option to be offended by? Was your faith, your religion. Apparently, you can't be offended as a Christian or as a religious person or as someone of faith. That was what I thought when I read it. I thought, man, that's so weird that they didn't even give me the option. Well, I might have checked yes, maybe. But I was struck by that, and it kind of got, got me thinking. And I, thought of, I think about Jesus as he stands before these men taking this abuse, taking the beating, taking what they were dishing out to him. And Jesus never batted an eye, never raised an eyebrow. He wasn't surprised, frankly. And I think for Christians, there is a sense in which we are called by Christ, by the gospel, and following as in, in his example to be unoffendable to a large extent. The expectation for Christians is not that we would whine, not that we would complain, not that we would say, hey, I'm being treated unfairly. God, this isn't fair. Because the bottom line is, Jesus tells us, the gospels tell us, the New Testament writers tell us that if we are a Christian, we are going to suffer for the sake of Christ. We are going to take abuse. We are going to take suffering for the sake of being a Christian. It's a guaranteed thing. If you are in Christ, you will suffer. And in fact, the New Testament would tell us, rejoice in your suffering. Don't cry. Don't complain. Don't get bent out of shape. But rejoice in your suffering. Recognize that through suffering comes endurance, perseverance, grace, this is not me saying, as I said, this is not me saying that we ought to take all the abuse 
that ever comes our way, that we shouldn't stand up for ourselves, that we should be doormats. But it does mean that as Christians, we can stand firm in the face of abuse the same way Jesus did. We should never let the wicked men dictate how we act, how we respond, how we behave, because Jesus didn't. Because we honestly, we could lash out all the time at people who treat us wrongly based on our faith. But we're not called to that. We're called to something else. We're called to take it. We're called to face the suffering with grace, just like Jesus did, with humility, with patience, with grace, as he stood there and as he took the shame and as he took the mocking and as he took the abuse. The second thing we see, point number two, is that Jesus endured justice, the injustice of his enemies, and so should we. We see this in verses 66 through 68 and also in verse 71, that Jesus basically was given a completely and totally unjust, unjust trial. That's why if you noticed in my title, the title of my sermon today is The Trial of Jesus, but trial is in quotations, it's in quotes. Because really, there was nothing about this trial that was a true Jewish trial. Everything about it was fake. These men had already made up their mind about Jesus. They had already made up their mind about what they wanted to do with him. And they had already had two bad, two uh, illegal trials in order to convict Jesus. In order to find something on him so that they could put him to death. In no sense of the word was this a real trial, but it was simply a show. These Jewish leaders were all aspiring thespians, putting on a big show, holding this trial when they had already made up their minds about Jesus. They'd already spent half the night interrogating him, trying to come up with reasons why they could put him to death. A reason that was not only good enough for Jewish law, but one that was good enough for the Romans as well. Because in this time, the Jews were unable to uh, execute someone on their own. They had had that authority taken away from them by the Roman government. And so if these Jewish leaders wanted Jesus to be put to death, they not only had to come up with a crime that was convincing enough for them, for their courts, for their trial, but one that was convincing enough to the Romans. That's why Jesus went before Pontius Pilate. That's why Jesus was sent before him because the Jews were unable to execute him apart from Roman authority telling them they could. The Jewish leaders needed Roman approval in order to do it, and so they were desperate to come up with anything they could, any reason they could find for Jesus to be put to death. But they ultimately had nothing. Everything about this trial was a sham, was a show, was illegal, in fact. Even according to the Jewish system of justice, this trial was a sham. Here's just a few ways in which this trial was illegal, according to the Jewish standard. First of all, most of the proceedings for this quote-unquote trial were held at night. That was contrary to Jewish law. Trials must be held during the daytime. The second thing is that there was no testimony given for the defense of Jesus. Jesus was not allowed to bring any witnesses forward. No one came to speak on his behalf or in his defense. Rather, what they tried to do was convince him to incriminate himself. This was illegal for there to be no defense given. The verdict came in only one day rather than the required two days according to Jewish law. This was another way in which this was an illegal trial. Another way was that this trial took place on a feast day, took, took place on the Passover. That was against the law. You were not allowed to try someone or convict someone on a celebration, on the feast day. 
This trial also took place primarily at the high priest's house rather than at the temple. This was another violation. Over and over again, we see this trial was illegal. It was unjust. It was wrong. It was conducted terribly by these men who claimed to be upholding justice. One of the biggest ways was that it was based on false testimony. The other gospels tell us that there was witness after witness after witness brought forward in order to lie and bear false witness against Jesus. But the crazy thing was that even all of these false witnesses, none of their stories matched. None of them made any sense. None of them were matching up. They were all lies and proven as such. Even when they tried to lie and bear false testimony against Jesus in court, they failed. Even their false testimonies didn't match. But that did not stop them from coming to a verdict. Everything about this trial was terribly wrong, was terribly unjust. And this is why Jesus was mostly silent through the process, because he knew that he could not indict himself, that he could not incriminate himself. This show trial was a mockery of an otherwise very good justice system. The Jewish system of justice in this time was actually very, very good, very fair. And when it aired, it aired on the side of mercy rather on the side of judgment. In fact, just to, to show you a few ways in which their system was so good was that if someone were convicted and were sentenced and they were sent out to go be executed, what the, the Jewish system required was that there be one person standing at the door of the temple with a flag. And the person that was taking the, the guilty party out to be executed walked slowly but constantly kept an eye back to that flag. The reason being that if any person were to come forward during that time and claim to have testimony that would prove this person to be innocent, the man would wave the flag and they would immediately turn around and go back to the temple. They would stop the process right there. If the person being led out to be executed thought of something that they didn't think of before that they thought could prove their innocence, they were allowed to be taken back and continue the trial to be able to prove their innocence. All of this erred on the side of mercy. It was very fair. It was very just. In fact, if the Sanhedrin came back with a verdict where everyone said the person was guilty, the verdict was thrown out because it was considered that there was no mercy. If all of the Sanhedrin came back with the same verdict, then that verdict was thrown out if, it was, if they all said that the person was guilty and deserved death because it was deemed that there was no mercy in that courtroom. We know that Jesus, in this instance, received a full guilty verdict unanimously at the hands of the Sanhedrin. Everything about this trial was fake. It was a show. It was unjust. It was illegal. But this is what Jesus was given. Jesus never complained. He never whined. For Christians, injustice is and will continue to become more and more something that is a part of our cultural landscape. As Christians here in the West, here in the United States, I think there's a temptation for us to desperately cling to the culture, desperately cling to a sort of justice that suits us, something that is fair, something that, that will allow Christianity to quote-unquote thrive. We hear pastors all the time saying things like, man, I remember back in my day whenever you could be a Christian and it was easy and the whole country was Christian and this and that. 
or people wishing for the days when we had a president who was Christian where then Christianity could really flourish, could really grow, the gospel could really spread if only we had the right president, if only the cultural landscape was different. But that's not the case. Wasn't the case for Christ. Wasn't the case for the early church. We as Christians need to understand that the church is going to be facing progressively more and more as we already are seeing a culture that is hostile to the world, a culture that is uh, unjust to Christians, unjust to the church. And in the same way that Christ here stands in the face of injustice, the church will stand in the face of injustice as well. In fact, it might prove to be a purification process for the church. Because the more that the world grows hostile and unjust to the church, the more uh, cultural Christians will leave the church. The more people who don't truly love Christ but are, but are pretending to because they think it will gain them some sort of cultural acceptance will leave. This is ultimately a good thing for the church. It is a purification for the church. And as we all know from the early church in the book of Acts, the gospel does not need cultural acceptance in order to spread. It does not need a justice system that is bent in our favor in order to spread. The gospel will go forth. The church will grow. The kingdom of God will be advanced regardless of what the culture sends our way, regardless of how well the justice system is in our favor. And Jesus demonstrates that for us here as he stood in the face of injustice. And then point number three, Jesus looks past the darkness and so should we. Something that's cool to see from this interaction between Jesus and the Sanhedrin, this Jewish council, is that Jesus, knowing the suffering, knowing the sorrow that is ahead for him, that he is about to endure on the cross, is able to look past that to what he knows will come after. Jesus is able to look past his humiliation and look forward to his exaltation, which is coming after his resurrection. In verse 69, Jesus references the prophecy of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, 13 through 14, where we read this. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Look at what Jesus says of himself in verse 69. He says, as these men ask him, and we'll start in verse 67. They say, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. Jesus recognizing that this is a sham. This is all built on false testimony. Nothing he says will matter. He says in verse 69, but from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Here, Jesus takes the prophecy from Daniel 7 and he applies it to himself. And this was no small thing. This would have been a well-known prophecy to these Jews, to these uh, leaders, to these scribes, to these priests. It was a well-known prophecy in Judaism and it was widely accepted that this son of man in Daniel chapter seven was a reference here to the divine, that the son of man was divine. 
If these wicked men were not so hard-hearted, then Jesus' statement here would have struck fear into their hearts. It would have scared the living daylights out of them. This man, whom they felt the liberty to mock, to ridicule, to spit upon, to beat, this man would one day return, not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering warrior who would judge the living and the dead. This is the man who they have been spitting on, who they have been beating, who they have been mocking. And if these men truly understood the gravity of what Jesus meant when he said this, if they had believed him, they would be frozen in fear right now for how they had just treated this man. Jesus knows that this is their hour, that this is the power of darkness, as he told his disciples just a few hours earlier. But he also knows that this hour is temporary, that this darkness will not have the last word. Darkness would not last forever. With this hope, Jesus looked beyond what was happening to him now, beyond what was taking place here, and proclaimed to the mob that although they were desperate to kill him in order to hold on to their power, when all was said and done, he would be seen as the one holding all authority, holding all power, that he would be seated on the throne. That though this moment of darkness and, and sadness and sorrow was here for now, and that these men were given power, that it would not last, but that ultimately power belonged to Jesus. Because of his knowledge of the truth and his trust in the Father's plan, Jesus was able to, to look beyond current darkness to the glory that awaited on the other side. Again, there's a lesson here for us. We face plenty of hardship, plenty of darkness in our lives. But if we know the truth of the scriptures, if we know the truth that God has revealed to us in his word, and if we build our hope on that, on what the Lord has promised, then we can look past current darkness and we can find hope even in the midst of the darkness. It's this kind of mentality that leads us to say, along with the psalmist, that weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Or consider with me what we see from the psalmist who writes Psalm 94. Psalm 94 in verses three through seven says this. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. How often does this feel like the world that we live in? How often do we feel the way the psalmist does here? Asking, Lord, what is going on here? All I see is darkness. All I see is sorrow. All I see is pain. But like the psalmist continues on, he says later in the psalm, who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? And then he concludes, but the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. Out. Justice belongs to God. Ultimate power and authority is his. It may not seem like it to these men who are here abusing him, who are holding this mock trial, who are about to crucify him. It may seem to them that they hold the power, that they hold the authority. But we can know along with the psalmist that they do not. 
this is how Christians ought to think. When we see the darkness, when we see the sorrow, we know who it is that will rise up against the wicked. We know who it is that will take out the enemy. We know who it is who is our stronghold, who is our rock and our refuge. Point number four, victory ultimately belongs to Christ and will be ours also. Because the prophecy that Jesus just proclaimed and applied to himself from the book of Daniel, because it was understood to be a reference to the divine, these men rightly asked the next question. This this statement prompts the Sanhedrin to ask the logical question, are you the son of God then? This is the question. This is the ultimate question. It is the question upon which everything stands or falls. Jesus' statement here, when he has asked if he is the son of God, is not an attempt to sidestep the question. What does Jesus say? He says, you say that I am. This was a common way to answer someone in that day. When we read it, it sounds weird to our ears. He says, you say that I am. What is he doing? Is he sidestepping the question? Is he trying to avoid it? Is he trying not to? answer it or incriminate himself, but I don't think that's the case. You see, this was the equivalent of saying, you have said rightly that I am, or it is as you have said. In fact, the NASB translate this phrase simply as I am here in the book of Luke. Jesus says, yes, I am. I am the son of God. You have spoken rightly there's a good bit of irony here as we see Jesus now proclaiming that he is the son of God, answering this question that these men have proposed to him. Yes, I am the son of God. There's a good bit of irony here because these wicked men sought to murder Jesus because they saw him as a threat to their authority. Yet in committing this heinous act, they were becoming the instruments used to bring about Jesus' ultimate victory, solidifying his authority. And in doing so, they were rejecting their access to victory and power, which is available in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When we think of the parable of the tenants that we read earlier, when we read it, we stopped at verse 16. But the parable actually goes on beyond that. It goes on past verse 16, where the son of the owner of the vineyard has been killed. Let me read for you the last two verses of that parable. Verse 17, Jesus says, He looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus Christ holds ultimate authority, holds ultimate power, holds ultimate dominion over all things, and to reject Jesus Christ means that you have rejected the cornerstone and you will ultimately be crushed by him. There is no middle ground. Ultimately, Jesus has victory over his enemies, victory over the mockers, victory over darkness. Jesus won the victory when he suffered and died and rose again. Death could not hold him. And this is where we see the good news of the gospel coming through because all of those who are united to Christ by faith share in this victory. This victory that was won by Christ was won for the whole team, was won for all of us, was won on our behalf. This is why Romans 6, 5 says, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
Death could not hold Christ, and those who are in Christ are not held by death either. The same way he rose from the dead, we too look forward to a day when we will celebrate a resurrection like his. This is the gospel. Because in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, as he is described in verse 67 of our passage, we are freed from our sin, saved from the wrath of God because Jesus took our punishment on the cross. Because Jesus, the Son of Man, as he is described in verse 69, applying the prophecy of Daniel to himself, the Son of Man is coming back with all power and majesty to judge the living and the dead, and all will have to give an account, including the mockers, including the deceivers, including the traitors in this scene. Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as he is described in verse 70, we can trust that he has said and he will do it. That he has all power necessary to save those whom the Father has given him and will put those who humbly confess and trust trust in him in places of power and places of authority seated at his right hand. The one last thing I want us to think about as we consider this passage as we finish, is that it is easy for us to look with disgust on these mockers, to look with disgust on these who have beaten Jesus, these who have abused him, these who have borne false witness against him, who have spit on him, who have blasphemed him. But I ask you the question, where do we fit in this story? If we were to be placed somewhere in the time that this was happening, if we were to be placed somewhere in this story, where would we be? There is no happy defender of Christ standing at his side. No, we know that all have betrayed him. All have left him. All have abandoned him. I think the answer is to the, to the question of where would we be is saying about in the song how deep the Father's love for us. In verse two, this song says this. There's a beautiful line in the song. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. We would be deceiving ourselves to think we would be anywhere else than with these mockers, with these scoffers, abusing Jesus, spitting on him, blaspheming him, for this is in our nature. This is who we are apart from Christ. We are those who blaspheme, we are those who mock, we are those who hate him and are his enemies. That is why the good news of Jesus Christ is such good news. Because Jesus Christ, when he endured this and then ultimately went to the cross to pay the penalty for sins, he did so for people like this. For men and women like these men who beat him, who spit on him, who mocked him, who blasphemed him. Jesus did it for us because we are these people. Consider this when we think about God's grace and marvel at the magnitude of this kind of grace. That Jesus is enduring all of, these from this, from all of this from these wicked men, spitting on him, blaspheming him, doing who knows what else to him, and yet those are the very ones that he died to save. He died to save sinners like us, wretches like us. It is our voice that cried out among the scoffers. It is us who cried that he be crucified. We are guilty right along with these men. But praise God that the gospel of Jesus Christ says that he came to save ones just like those, ones just like us. That we don't have to face the crushing of the cornerstone, that we don't have to be 
broken to pieces by his judgment and by his wrath for he has provided a way for us to be forgiven. If we trust in Jesus Christ, if we're united to him by faith, believing that he did what he said he would do, that on the cross he died for our sin and that we will celebrate a resurrection like his, we too will be saved from his wrath. Let's pray.